Welcome to Uncommons. I'm your host, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, we're focused on the important question of testing and tracing, where we're at and where we need to be to reopen our economy safely. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Warner. He's the Medical Director of Critical Care at Michael Guerin Hospital here in our east end of Toronto, and with his frontline knowledge and experience, he has been critical of the speed and scope of public health efforts to date. I tried to channel some of his frustration just this past week in the House of Commons. We only face an economic crisis because we face a health crisis, and we know that the answer to the health crisis is to test, trace, isolate, and support. Yet for weeks now, we've seen less than 50% of 60,000 tests, our national daily testing capacity, go used. Capacity that itself is insufficient and needs to be scaled up. While BC has managed to contain community spread, my province of Ontario has failed to test quickly, smartly, or sufficiently. On tracing, Dr. Warner at my local Michael Guerin Hospital has said that Ontario is aspiring for mediocrity and called these tracing efforts inexcusable. Michael, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So what does your day-to-day look like at Michael Guerin Hospital? At the beginning, we were preparing ourselves for a huge influx of critically ill patients uh, to come all at the same time. And fortunately, because of the physical distancing measures that everyone has participated in, that didn't happen. And we've been able to care for our critically ill patients within the resource envelope that we have. We're not dealing with very much non-COVID illness. And every day, I was just on call for five days in a row, we have one, two, or three patients coming into the ICU with COVID-19. So it's it's kind of a slow burn or a smoldering uh, epidemic that we're facing now, at least in my hospital. And have we put ourselves in a position to succeed because of the physical distancing? If we have flattened the curve, uh, which we have to some degree succeeded in, in flattening the curve and making sure we haven't had hospitals like yours overrun, but moving forward, as we ease physical distancing measures, have we put ourselves in a position to succeed? I think we've bought ourselves some time. And uh, we the, the goal of physical distancing, we have to remember, was to make sure that our hospitals were not overrun. It didn't make COVID-19 go away. It's still there in the community. And for the past eight to 10 weeks, my hope was that the public health care infrastructure would be shored up and um, strengthened so that as we start to think about opening up the economy, we ensure that there's a public health plan that will enable that. What I'm not clear about is whether we're leading with the economy first and hoping that the public health infrastructure catches up with that, because that would be the wrong order to do things in. We seem as political leaders, particularly at the provincial level where public health efforts are ultimately, where responsibility ultimately lies. We see plans to have a plan. We see leaders at the microphone saying we're going to have a plan for testing but it's been weeks and weeks and weeks now and when the solution to this health crisis it's an economic crisis only because it's a health crisis and every single smart person i've read or spoken to says test trace isolate and support and it it's incredible to me that we don't yet have a clear focus plan and strategy to do just that discussing a, a future plan doesn't make a lot of sense testing is the first pillar if you don't test, you have no eyes, you have no ears on this. You, you don't know where the virus is lurking in the community. And you can't contact trace if you don't test because you simply haven't done enough testing. So the testing is fundamental. And I think that what I'd like to hear from the government is data about every day. about and This is how much more testing we've done. This is where we've identified coronavirus lurking. This is what we've done to mitigate risk. These are the things that we're doing to ensure that we can open up the economy weeks to months from now. 
not we're opening up the economy and we're doing half the amount of testing we promised to do. It, it just, it, it doesn't make any sense and it's not gonna work. Uh, we can't wish this away. We have to do hard work to be able to have the economy start and not move backwards. Because my concern is that if we start opening things up too early without the public health care fundamentals in place, we will have to go back to the beginning, which will be very difficult per, for people's mental health, for their financial health, and uh, for their physical health too. I mean, I don't think people can take this much longer, but we will be in this for 18 to 24 months if we don't do the hard work before we open things up. We see politicians talk about testing, and as you say, we aren't hitting the numbers that we previously said we wanted to hit, certainly here in Ontario. And when I look at national capacity of 60,000 tests a day, we're doing less than 50% of that, and it's been the same way for, for weeks. Do you have a sense on the ground of what the obstacles are to increasing our testing efforts? So I'm not a public health physician, but at least in the beginning, I think that the initial problem was lack of supplies, reagents, et cetera. And hopefully that's been mitigated. I don't know, though. Uh, then there's lab capacity. We have alleged lab capacity, I think, in Ontario to do 20,000 tests. I'm not sure why we're not reaching that capacity. Is it that we're not obtaining the samples? Is it that we don't have the staff to run the lab? I'm not sure. And then there's also the data piece. Do we know who's being tested, why they're being tested? Should people be retested? I mean, I told my parents today that, you know, I've cared for, I don't know, 25, 40 COVID-19 patients. I've never been tested. And uh, maybe I should be. My colleagues who work in the United States who are ICU physicians are tested routinely. And not just me, the personal support workers who are in the room far more times than I am in a day. There should be a role for testing them as well. There's no downside risk to testing broadly. And I've just talked about testing healthcare workers. We need surveillance testing in the community because we don't know where this is lurking. And there's, there are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic spreaders of this. And although they may not die from COVID-19, we can't control who they interact with unless they know they have COVID-19 and can alter their behavior appropriately. It has always struck me as odd that we, one, don't do surveillance testing, but, but also that we don't, we sit on our hands and we wait for people to come to us who have symptoms. And then we sometimes test them. In other cases, don't. I've previously mentioned my dad almost certainly had COVID-19 and they asked him, have you been outside the country in the last 14 days? And he said, no, 19 days. And so they, they didn't test him. And he said, we're, we're, we're not in a position to, to test you. But to proactively reach out and say healthcare workers as one category, because you are interacting with patients, personal support workers, an obvious other area. And when we see 80% of the deaths in long-term care homes, why we wouldn't be proactively with an army of testers reaching out into long-term care homes and making sure people are safe there, it, it boggles the mind that we aren't being proactive on, on that front. I think for the long-term care homes, if, if I can delve into that for a second, so testing is important, but if we want a durable solution to long-term care infection control problem, we need to make sure that whatever report comes out of all this identifies that we need infection prevention and control measures in long-term care facilities. After SARS in Ontario, that expertise was uh, bolstered in hospitals. And that's why, outside of a couple of exceptions, there really haven't been hospital-based outbreaks of COVID-19 really anywhere in Canada, which is a victory. But those, that, those expertise do not exist in long-term care facilities. People don't know that they should change their gloves in between assessing a residence. They know now, but it's too late. It might be shocking for the listeners to, to know that, but that's the truth. And my hope is that the most vulnerable members of our society are protected in the future. 
because it's been a real tragedy there and one that in hindsight was likely preventable if they just knew what they were supposed to do and had the PPE to do it. With fairly straightforward protocols and PPE. This is not cognitively challenging in terms of what needs to be done. Believe me, it's not fun getting, you know, donning and doffing over and over and over again and being very mindful of every single action you take but it's the right thing to do and anybody can do it with appropriate training and equipment. And you have said you're not a public health expert, but you are on the ground and you do see people come into your hospital with COVID and you have said publicly that you can, you know people have it when they come in even before there's a test and why we are not moving quickly to begin tracing efforts, why there's the delay, it, it's it's inexplicable, and I think you use the word inexcusable. Do you have any sense of why why things are not moving more quickly? So there are patients who show up to assessment centers who may not have symptoms or may not have significant symptoms, and we don't have lab tests. I think those patients, it's more difficult to call them out as COVID just by looking at them. However, having point of care testing, that means immediate test results would really help. So let's take that population aside. Let's move to the hospital population. Having done this for eight or 10 weeks, if a patient comes into the hospital with a characteristic story, a chest x-ray that looks in a certain way and certain blood tests that are abnormal uh, and breathing problems, they are COVID until proven otherwise. And even if the test is negative, I still use COVID as their diagnosis. Even if the test is always negative, I will write COVID on their death certificate because I'm so certain uh, uh, that the clinical picture is consistent. And what I would love to be able to do is press a button on my electronic medical record to inform public health the instant I make that diagnosis in my mind, instead of waiting the one to two days for the test result to come back, and then the one day or more for public health to act on that test result, assuming we don't get a false negative. Because these lags in time can lead to lives lost. And uh, a tightening of the connection between the frontline physician and the public health infrastructure is something that I would welcome. And I think most health frontline physicians would be more than happy to do our part to give them the information they need to do their very important job. And do you speak to colleagues from other provinces who are on the ground in similar ways? It's, it's shocking in some ways that we see BC has effectively contained community spread on the numbers and they are doing surveillance testing. They seem to have a better testing strategy based on conversations I've had with uh, Irfan Dalla the tracing efforts seem to be more serious than those that are being undertaken here in Ontario. Is there a sense of, should we look to BC and say, let's scale up and use BC as best practices? Or, or what are some of the other things that we should be looking at doing here in Ontario? Well, I think we need to learn from each other. And that's why in some ways, or I've said it's inexcusable. I mean, we saw what was coming with, uh, with respect to New York City and Italy, and that's why we essentially shut down the economy. But that was, in retrospect, an easy thing to do because it was so obvious it needed to be done. But what we haven't done is looked at South Korea or other countries that have been wildly successful in containing this and employed their strategies, which are not as exciting as buying ventilators, but involve getting a bunch of volunteers on the phone, chasing down people, doing hard, difficult tasks uh, over and over and over again, and sharing data. So, I mean, they're going to build a statue for Bonnie Henry. I don't think that's going to happen here in Ontario. And we need to have the best people leading public health efforts. And if they're not the best people, uh, we need the best team around the leaders to support them. We need investment, which I think the government is willing to do. And we need excellent management of the resources that they're given. We also need to consider that the private sector, technology, et cetera, can be leveraged to help with the public health efforts. 
it'd be interesting if there was an app on people's phone. I know people are concerned about privacy. Maybe it just provides people with information, but it could help to contact trace as well. Uh, there are jurisdictions that have done that. I asked the question at the industry committee. I've been one of the most privacy focused parliamentarians since 2015, but I struggle. There are ways we can preserve privacy in every other possible way. And I've been in debates with privacy focused individuals at committee who say voluntariness is the hill that we are going to die on here. And I think why when kids in Ontario have to have a vaccine in order to go to public education, why can't we preserve privacy, decentralize the information on people's phones and privacy preserve in every other possible way, but have it more mandatory and at a minimum opt out? It's a struggle for me why, if it could save lives, if it could help end this crisis, both health and economic in a faster way, and we had a data governance framework in place that we could delete the data at the end of the pandemic, I do think it's, it's a serious conversation we should have. It's one that I don't have a good line of sight on, but as the person who treats people with this and watches people die, I mean, if, you, if I really want to be dramatic, and we're talking about privacy, if you're afraid of someone knowing what, that you were in Walmart, standing in line next to someone who has COVID, let's just keep in mind that people are dying alone, privately, in the ICU, while their family members watch them on Zoom. I mean, that's, that's the trade-off here. And if you're willing to use Google or your credit card or social media, uh, and if you're willing to physically distance for the benefit of other people or wear a mask for the benefit of other people, maybe it's time to have a serious discussion about you know, breaking down the walls of privacy temporarily for the greater good of everyone else. Uh, some people aren't going to like that, so there has to probably be an opt-out clause. But I think a lot of people would consider it if the alternative is not working for the next year, their kid's not going to school, and uh, them not being able to see their friends and family. Especially when we could, as a government, put rules in place that build trust in those applications that protect privacy in every other possible way. So I, I do think it, as I say, I think it's a serious conversation we should have. And I, as someone who has been pushing the government to have stronger privacy rules, I think in this particular instance, we could build privacy out in other ways, but adoption rates of the, an application like that would be so critical for its success and voluntariness we know from other countries, a voluntary application just isn't going to get to the adoption rate to be effective whatsoever. You also mentioned South Korea, and one thing that struck me, and this feels like a long time ago now, but it was, it was I would say sometime in March that I was writing to the health minister to identify they were doing drive-through testing. It, it was rapid testing effectively where people were getting the results very, very quickly. And wouldn't rapid testing, you said point of care testing, that seems like it would make such a critical difference on the ground. So we have point-of-care testing in the hospital for certain blood tests that are actually used in critically ill patients. And it allows me to make my decisions for a patient in front of me immediately instead of waiting for 45 minutes. And on the individual patient level, having those test results available immediately can actually make the difference between someone living and dying. So if we scale that up to an entire population, I mean, you can do the math. Absolutely. We, if we had point-of-care testing, if you knew you... you the patient in front of you had COVID or not within 10 or 15 minutes, that would make a huge difference. It would make the public health official's job much easier and also would allow for repeated testing because you know, your queuing time would be less. Um, you could do drive-through testing effectively. You can do testing in non-healthcare um, venues like businesses, et cetera. Uh, there'd be a cost to this, but so, so, I, there are lots of smart people in Canada and I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, someone is thinking about this and that there's funding to support those types of innovations, which would make a difference. 
We've stepped in with a little bit of federal funding, but it, it does occur to me that any company that could credibly build out rapid testing ought to receive a little bit of financial support from the federal government. And then any company that is able to scale up those efforts in a serious way, in a credible way, we should really drive federal dollars into it and ramp it up until the private sector can step in with, uh, with purchasing support. Well, I think the way to look at this, whether it's privacy or testing, is what is necessary and sufficient to allow us to open up the economy? And then let's work backwards from that. Not let's open up the economy and see whether we get away with it. So we need to make sure that we have a solid foundation to support the opening up of the economy. And people have different opinions depending on where they sit. Me, I've got an MBA. I understand business to some degree. I can see the business sides of things. And I think that engaging people who may not be academics, but may just be interested in business and medicine, et cetera, or um, understand the needs of those who are socially disadvantaged and what their specific, um, the nuances of what they need, uh, need to be considered as well. And have conversations about what society um, needs to be able to get to the point where we can open up the economy instead of the other way around. We see what's happening in the United States, and I think that's gonna be an unmitigated disaster, unfortunately. Well, I think that's right. We need to, how, look to what are the solutions to reopen the economy. We know there are great costs to the physical distancing that we've undertaken. We have a recession right now, and with that comes, there will be an increase in suicides, no doubt. There will be increased mental health issues, no doubt. There are, there are going to be people who suffer greater health consequences because they are now poorer and, and worse off than they were before. And, and so there are not really serious knock-on consequences. There are people not getting surgeries that are, you know, so-called elective surgeries, but matter a great deal in their lives as far as their health outcomes as well. And so there are all sorts of negative, uh, negative outcomes because of the physical distancing as it continues for an extended period of time. If testing and tracing, if we can really ramp up those efforts in a serious way to get us in a place where we can save lives, but also reopen the economy. I just, I really do think we have to, we've, we've blown our brains out on economic supports and I'm glad we've done so, but I think we have to do the same on, on our health efforts. And I, and I don't think fairly we've done that to date. I think it'll cost more in the long run. I think Dr. Irfan Della wrote an article about adaptation versus elimination. And are we just going to live with this and have, live with a 60% economy for two or three years until this burns itself out? Are we going to try and eliminate it? And that's a serious conversation that you and your peers need to have because to eliminate it, what we're doing right now is not good enough, not nearly good enough. We need to be testing hundreds of thousands of people a day, not having a goal of 20,000 in Ontario. I mean, that's the scale that we're talking about here. But uh, if you don't do the hard work, you're not going to have the good outcome. So, or we decide as a society that we're going to adapt, we're going to live with this and uh, people will die and make a decision that's acceptable because some people say people die of other causes. That's, a, that's an ethical discussion that I'm not prepared to have. But the other thing that I think that I'd like to uh, uh, kind of bring across to your, to your constituents is that when most people think about a heart attack or cancer or a stroke, there's some vision in their mind of what that looks like. But COVID-19, unless you're me or one of the nurses or PSWs who works with me, you don't know what it looks like when somebody's dying of COVID-19 because there are no visitors in the hospital. So that story of what this is really like at the bedside has not permeated society. So it's really an enigma people are fighting. They don't know what this thing is other than it's made their life terrible and they're not being affected by it directly. I don't know what the right way is for people to understand or learn about what we see every day. But when you see someone dying because they can't breathe, uh, that that stays with you 
And when we when you see how quickly this can take someone's life, that stays with you. So for me, I, I'm I'm all in on this because I see it every day. I don't know how that story can be better shared with the public, and if that would help motivate them to uh, support politicians that they as they have to make some difficult decisions about testing. Well, all the more reason I'm glad that you've taken the time to join me because I think people do need to hear it directly from people on the front lines who are frankly putting their own lives at risk in treating people on a daily basis with this serious, serious virus. So thanks, Michael, for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. A huge thank you to Michael for taking the time to join us, but also for his advocacy to elevate this conversation and to call for stronger, smarter, and faster action. I hope you join us for future episodes. Subscribe at uncommons.ca, including an episode with Dr. Irfan Dalla. He's the vice president of Unity Health Toronto, and he's recently written in the Globe and Mail to suggest we should be seeking to eliminate the virus, not accepting controlled adaptation.